I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. episode, we began to explore the Ocoee Massacre of 1920, which occurred three years before the Rosewood Massacre of 1923. In this episode, we'll continue to dive into the Ocoee Massacre and explore the connections of that massacre with the Rosewood Massacre, which we haven't yet really delved into. Just to recap, the Ocoee Massacre was an act of mob violence and a direct response to Black residents in the Floridian Orange County town who either voted or tried to vote on November 2nd, 1920, Election Day, a day that became known as the, quote, single bloodiest day in modern American history, end quote. One little known fact that often is not told as part of this story has been researched and explained by University of Florida professor, author, and historian Dr. Paul Ortiz in his book, Emancipation Betrayed. In it, Dr. Ortiz explains how the Ocoee massacre occurred at the end of a massive Black voter registration and get-out-the-vote movement led by some of Florida's most prominent Black activists and leaders. Again, this is another way Black Floridians tried to resist disenfranchisement. What is also rarely discussed with regards to this tragedy is the fact that Ocoee wasn't the only place in Florida where blood was spilled on Election Day of that year. Blacks in several other Florida counties were either attacked or killed as well. That's also something we discussed in the last episode. The violence on Election Day in 1920 wasn't just a response to Blacks and Ocoee voting. It was part of a larger effort to quash any movement to enfranchise Blacks in Florida. Painful events such as the Ocoee Massacre can have long-term ramifications that reverberate through generations of descendants of victims or survivors. Before we delve into the ties between the Ocoee and the Rosewood Massacres, you're going to first hear from a descendant of a man we often associate with the destruction of Ocoee. July Perry. He, as we discussed in the last episode, was lynched at the start of the massacre after his friend, Moses Norman, tried to vote, which angered a mob that eventually helped destroy part of the Black community in Ocoee. Records show that Mr. Perry and his wife actually did cast their ballots in the election of 1920. That's something Pamela Schwartz revealed to us in the last episode as well. And something that often isn't discussed when this story is told is something the descendant of Mr. Perry, whom you're about to hear from, explained to me. That Perry was instrumental in helping to educate Black people in his community about voting. She believes that is a large part of the reason he was targeted in this massacre. My name is Sharon Cooley McWhite. I am originally from a small town, Northern Florida, Lake City, Florida, Columbia County. I am the daughter of the late Ernest Cooley and Willa Vita Harris Cooley. Now my mother is the one that was the bloodline to Julius July Perry. 
So we are recording, today is November 5th, and this is three days now after the 100th anniversary of the Okoe Massacre. And I want to know from you what it was like on that day, a century after this enormously tragic event that happened in your family's past. And what did you do to mark the occasion? This was an emotional time in the Perry's life. And I speak on behalf of so many of my family members that have crossed over, have transitioned over to definitely heaven, I do believe. And in speaking on their behalf, this pain and silence that we have suffered for so many years a hundred years ago. And I can't even imagine on that day, a hundred years ago, what Julius July Perry and so many other residents had to experience and endure. So much hate, so much pain, so much agony. And to not just lose your life, but to have your life taken away from you. To me, I just can't even imagine that. So my family has lived with this for so many years. So even though it was celebrated publicly as the 100 year anniversary, we have been suffering with this pain for a very long time. So every day has been a remembrance for us. Of course, with all the events that are now being recognized here in the city of Orlando and the city of Okoe, the city of Okoe has put on several events. The mayor of Okoe, along with other elected officials, Mayor Jerry Demings held the event downtown in front of the Orlando History Center where the first marker was placed last year, had an event where he recognized different survivors, family members, descendants of this tragic event. And it was very moving. It was very heartfelt. And I just would like to thank them for the initiative to address this. And then on that day, Governor DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, here in the state of Florida, issued that day of remembrance. The mayor of the city of Orlando issued a proclamation. I guess I wanted to know from you, when did you first find out about what had happened to your great uncle, correct, Julia? That is correct. Yes. Yes, yeah. my great, great uncle. I was a little girl. And so I remember vividly one of my aunts talking about Julius July Perry and the impact that his life had on our family and how he was actually brutally killed for educating our people in the rights to vote. He was a civil activist. He was a loving father. He was a loving uncle, 
a community leader, a prominent landowner, business owner. He had so many talents. And as she would share how he lost his life, you could feel a pin drop. It was almost like something had just pierced your soul as to how could someone do that just because they were doing something that was right. How can we continue to hurt people, especially when they're educating us? And when she shared that moment in time, again, so many of us sitting around the table was just quiet. We were just stunned. We was just numb that this type of life had actually happened to our family. Do you mind if I ask whatever you are comfortable with sharing what she mentioned happened to him? It's an emotional moment for me, and it has been. She stated that how he was hung, how he was pierced, how his soul, and all the bad things that they did to him, how they beat him. How they whooped him. The names they called him other than his own birthright name. No one deserves that. And I can only imagine even when they hung him that he was still yet so much alive. Nobody wants to die. And we do understand that is a part of this life. But to have your life taken away from you, that's senseless. My other question is the brutal nature that you just described of your great, great uncle's death. How do you think it changed the trajectory of your family? For example, a lot of Rosewood descendants have said, I feel like I'd have no idea what I could have been that was stolen from me. I have no idea where I would have been. And they felt like things were going so well and in an instant, all of that changed. So I just want to know from you how you think your family was changed because of this. Well, my family has been changed in so many ways. And I do have so many family members that are living today that has decided to walk in the footsteps of our late Honorable Julius July Perry. Back home, there are landowners, lots of land lots of businesses in their names. And we've come this far by faith. Our faith has guided us that even though this tragedy has impacted our family, we found a sense of peace. And that peace is to give back and making sure that our family know the history so that the history would not be repeated again. Why do you think it took so long for the truth of Akoe to come to light and to really be introduced into the public discourse? Well, I think it took so long. Well, definitely the family of Julius July Perry. This was something that I've talked to several of my elders that are family that we just didn't go around talking about. 
And as a grieving mother myself who lost my son two years ago, even though it's just like it was yesterday, it's not something that I reach out and just have a conversation with on a day-to-day with people. Even though in the midst of my pain, which is every second of a day, all day, all night, the pain doesn't go away. But as a family that has been impacted by such tragedy and pain, that's not a conversation at the table. Do you think that Akoi is on, from what you know about it, a better path? Or like you said, do you think they need to be doing more to address these underlying issues in their community? Oh, of course, there's much more work to be done. And now that this story has been brought to the public eye, there's so much diversity that can be brought to the city of Okoe. Even though African-Americans have moved back to the city of Okoe, they have two commissioners that are African-American males, but the relationship, I'm just waiting as time goes on, what is the city of Okoe really going to do for the people that have been impacted by the Okoe riot? You're going to hear from a few more relatives of July Perry. First, Aaron Franks in one interview, and his sister, Gladys Betty Franks Bell, in another interview. They're going to recount experiences told to them by their father, Richard Allen Franks, who was a survivor of the 1920 Ocoee Massacre. I conducted Gladys's interview. Historian and archivist Sherry Sherrod Dupree, who you also heard from previously, conducted Aaron's interview which is courtesy of the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida. Okay, great. Now, Gladys, how old was your father when the Ocoee Massacre happened? He was 18 when that happened. My father was. They had their house. They had their farm animals. You know, you'd name it all because they ate off the land. They had their garden. So they survived off the land. And by doing that, they were able to save money and buy more land. That's what my granddad did. And because he had owned a lot of land, I didn't realize that he had owned so much property. So what had happened was that as they bought more land, more black came from South Carolina, their family, 
came from South Carolina. Others came from North Carolina. When they got there, some of them gave them land, but I think what happened is that my granddaddy sold a lot of the land to the people that came so that they could, you know, build their homes and raise their families and work in the citrus picking oranges. So therefore, July Perry, who is my dad's uncle, was like a, a broker. He bought orange groves with the money. They saved their money, so they were able to help out their relatives that came there. So they wanted to vote. And after that, I think just about everybody knew that there was going to be some problems, some trouble. Because before then, the Ku Klux Klan had already marched in Orlando. They were getting ready. And they, and they, they the word was out, the blacks better not try to vote. So they did. And they came for my great uncle, July Perry. But before they got him, my granddad and my grandma had already had a plan laid out. If this happened, this is what you are to do. And so it did break out, the shooting and the, all of that. So the plan for my dad, he was the oldest, 18, was to take his siblings and make it to Plymouth. Now, the reason they said Plymouth was because the churches had sort of, you know, went to visit each other. So after that, they knew the Morgans family there in Plymouth. So that was the plan for my dad to take his siblings to Plymouth. Now, the way he had to do it, one of his brothers, he had to carry him on his back, take the other siblings hand in hand and run for dear life. But I guess when they got a chance to walk, they had to make their way out around Lake Apopka. Lake Apopka is not like it was then. It was nothing but woods and thickness and and they had to wade in water. They had to stay out of the sight. They told them stay out the sight of any white man, any white man, because they were out to kill any and every black in Ocoin. So they had they didn't have no knife, they didn't have no nothing. They had to go through the, all of that water and swamp right along the edge of a popka, Lake of Popka. But all they heard, all the shooting, and my dad said, oh, he, he could just hear, bam, 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 the guns going off, bam, bam, not knowing what was happening with uh, his dad and his mom. So they survived that massacre. So they all met up right there in Plymouth. So it was quite an ordeal. So how did your family get back on their feet? I, because they were God-fearing people. They prayed. 
And what happened was the Morgan family, what I was telling you about, she gave them a place to stay. The Morgan had a daughter named Earla. That turned out to be my mama. My daddy married her. <laughs> he was 18. Oh, he was 18. And he was 21 when they got married. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And my mama, he was a quiet spirit, you know. But she, after they married, she didn't have to work. My dad was always a provider. Always a provider. They started doing the same thing that they did in O'Connor. You know, planting gardens and and buying up. They got dogs working, picking oranges. My dad and his dad, they picked fruit by day. And at night, they took another job, what they call grubbing up trees. Just like you would take a bulldozer, get up the trees, clearing land, and they saved their money. So my dad, saving his money, he started building. He built him a house. Then after that, after he built his house, then grandpa, they worked together. Grandpa and Daddy built another house, a house for his mother. That was my great-grandmother. She was in the, uh, the massacre, too. She escaped. So everybody had to run for dear life. So then after that, my granddaddy and my dad, my dad built five more houses and they were like rental houses is that how they made they made extra money by renting out the houses he did that too but he was mostly providing a place for people to stay that he became a field foreman too just like july Perry. he ran a crew a picking orange crew they pick them up and carry them to work what a family so, July Perry was your uncle. My great, great uncle. July Perry, July Perry was my dad's uncle. He was the nephew of July Perry. Gotcha. Just incredible. I tell you, and it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there. But my dad bought more property. He owned a lot of property here in Plymouth. And he had a house moved. He saved his money now and turned it into a, we call it a juke joint. <laughs> you all probably would call it a tavern. Mm-hmm. Where he sold beer and wine. So and he was he was able to really get back on his feet after a Koei. Yes, yes, yes he was. And you know what? He never, all that he went through, he never hated a white person. Mm. Never. And he taught us that. You know? Mm-hmm. He loved people. He loved people. And that's why I think he was blessed. <laughs>
<laughs> My father was a great fisherman, that's for sure. Uh-huh. And I enjoyed going fishing with him, and we really enjoyed having a wonderful time together. He had his boat. He told me how to operate his boat, and I just had a wonderful time going out with him. We talked about time when he was young, about 18 years of age, when he had so quite right, and they did the burning, the shooting, the killing, and the looting, everything that night. And the clansmen came out with the hoods on their head, and then they went and painted their face and made them to keep them from being identified. They was killing black, blacks were killing white, and so they started painting their face, and then they started shooting everybody they could see. Daniel Frank, that's my father's father. He's coming home one night in his uh, wagon, and he had his mule pulling the wagon. He looked around, and somebody said, Dad, don't go there because they're shooting, they're killing, they're burning everything up in your hometown. Don't you go there because they're doing everything. And he turned around and went back. But my father was a young man at the time, 18 years old, yeah. And after he hauled his book around his house taking place, they were shooting and killing and looting. He had his brothers and sisters and one of them paraplegic quit on the walk. And my father put him on his back, and he went through the woods from Okoy all the way through Apopka. Through the woods all that particular time, taking him through the swamps. And that's where he landed in a popping. And then he finally wound up in Plymouth. But he told me about it. he did all of that to get the people in. They just took the land. They didn't get in a, nothing back, no compensated, never for all that, just taking the land. He, he felt bad about that. But And then he bought some guns. He always kept guns in his house because he never wanted to be without a gun. He was not a violent man, but he's a good man. He was a wonderful man, I think. He's a pillar of my, my Plymouth community. Everybody depended on him, and he was, didn't mind doing things for people. He always did things for people. So he bought a lot of guns. He kept them in his mattress and, and at home, and he, he cleaned his mattress just in case something happened. I said, hey, what's coming? For protection, son. For protection. You need it. You have it. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I still have one of those guns today. His father exactly. owned that gun. I think his father, father owned that gun. And somebody asked me, can he borrow this gun to put on a display? I say, no, I'm afraid it may get lost. I may not get it back. So anyway, I still had that particular gun after all that time. But he was a good man, a, a good provider. I so uh, all in all, all in all, we've come a long ways. But still, when I go through, have gone through a course, and now we own some of this land. And now he took this land and no <sighs> compensate for anything, anything. I just don't understand why people do that. But there have been many places, things happened in the years past that we seem to not do anything about it. But. Make our voice known. Let it be known that we need to get recompensated for whatever taken from us. Now, keep I'll, the story alive. Amen. Keep that story alive. As long as there's a family member, anybody who can talk about it, let them share the history. Let's share that's it. That's, right. how we, that's how we have pro- progressed over the years. It's by oral history. And of yes. course, I've looked at some of your records down there in the Ocoa area, and it even showed who purchased the land and who got the land practically for nothing. They just went out there and homestead. Little nothing. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what yeah, that's occurred. Yeah, Judah Paris, my father's uncle. So I think in the beginning, black people, we was prosperous. We was intelligent. We learned how to do and learn how to get this little swampy land at oil groves, and it was very fertile land. And it, the only girls, they would grow and produce and have good fruit because the land was swampy, but it was good. They didn't know that. But the land they used was not as fertile as the land that my grandfather, all of great granddad, all of them used. And they had good fruit. And they had a good vegetable stand. They had to make money. They were doing it. And they couldn't understand why they were being so productive and so prosperous on the land that they have and produced products and stuff. And they got, they were jealous for a period of time of the blacks being so 
and they had good, nice schools and good teachers and everything was good. Churches, mm-hmm. but they just couldn't stand it. And so they were deep down inside jealous. The first chance they got about voting registration and all that, they took that and used it for an example to try to hurt somebody. point of exploring the extensive history that occurred in Florida and the United States before the Rosewood Massacre is in part to understand how such an atrocity could occur without anyone being held accountable and without any recourse for the victims. It's also important to be able to connect the past with the present. The massacre that destroyed Ocoee 100 years ago and left an untold number of people dead would impact everyone involved. And for many survivors, it would impact their descendants for generations to come. Finally, understanding this history provides us with a more comprehensive understanding of the Black experience in America and dispels long-held myths and untruths about the Black experience, not just in the United States, but in this particular corner of America. This was not a monolithic experience for all Black people, regardless of geographic location. But there were some realities that were seemingly ubiquitous for Blacks or Black communities and produced deep-rooted, long-lasting consequences that are unique to the Black experience in America. Whether you've listened to the first season, which explored the destruction of Black Wall Street and its resurrection, so to speak, or if you've learned about the Ocoee and Rosewood massacres for the first time by listening to this season, you should have noticed that there is a legacy of dispossession that was very much a part of many of the assaults on Black communities that we've explored in this podcast. When someone is dispossessed of their property or land, some people are fortunate to be able to get back on their feet, as you just heard Gladys Betty Franks Bell recount how her family did so. Others, however, are not so lucky. Dispossessing or taking wealth away from people could plunge victims and their descendants into cycles of financial struggle, even poverty. We may even see this theme of dispossession manifest in later generations. We know that minority communities in the present day and age are disproportionately impacted by housing insecurity, which also includes issues of eminent domain, redlining, urban renewal, and predatory lending, all of which can also be interpreted as part of the legacy of dispossession so many minorities, including African-Americans, have experienced. Part of dispossession can often include displacement, When individuals suddenly have just about everything they own taken away from them and must immediately relocate to places where they may not have many, if any, connections, the support of family or friends, or stable housing or employment, the impact could be mentally and financially devastating. Sometimes families are separated, which adds another element of instability, socially, mentally, or financially. It can also be very traumatic. During slavery, Black families were also frequently separated when one or more family members would be sold to another plantation or slave owner. If this owner lived in a faraway town or even another state, family members may never see one another again. You can see that the legacies of dispossession and displacement are deeply rooted and long-lasting, especially when it comes to African Americans in America. Connecting the past with the present gives us insight into how and why. These assaults on Black communities almost always include some element of the illusion of racial superiority. 
The illusion of racial superiority has colored the trajectory of Black life in America since the first African arrived on these shores. The racial superiority complex propped up slavery for several hundred years. It also chipped away at the gains that Black Americans made after Reconstruction, particularly in the South, until there were but a skeleton of any of them left. We see that same illusion of racial superiority ingrained in institutionalized racism that continues to hamper the growth of Black, Brown, and poor people today. It's rooted in a set of once legal but discriminatory laws and practices that codified the subjugation and disenfranchisement of Black, Brown, and poor people a century or more prior. Again, connecting the past with the present helps us to understand this. In that sense, it should be noted that tragedies such as the Rosewood Massacre were not simply a result of the myth of supremacism and did not occur in a vacuum. Despite what many of us are taught or not taught, while such incidents do represent some of the ugliest, most destructive aspects of supremacism, these events were also not outliers on the spectrum of Black life during the early part of the 20th century. The Ekoi massacre occurred just three years prior to the Rosewood massacre. These massacres, however, were products of the socio-political and economic conditions born out of racial hatred that created the space for the massacres to occur. And tragedies of a similar nature that took place prior to the Rosewood massacre that were also unique to the Black experience in this region were like stress tests that gauged the boundaries intended to keep those conditions in check. Each racially motivated act of violence that victimized Black people and minorities, like the Rosewood Massacre, that went unpunished, pushed those boundaries further and further apart, while providing a wider opening for those conditions to take their place. The cause of the Rosewood Massacre is summed up in a nearly 100-page report that was the result of a state commissioned study, which characterized it as, quote, a tragedy of American democracy and the American legal system. In other words, democracy and the justice system failed the Rosewood victims, as well as the Ekoe victims. If we analyze the Ekoe massacre in relation to the Rosewood massacre in this context, we'll begin to see how widespread that failure of democracy and justice was for Black people at this time. In other words, the Rosewood massacre occurred in part because of the ability of the perpetrators of the Ekoe massacre and dozens upon dozens of other attacks on African-Americans and Black communities to carry out those acts of terror with impunity. The race-based exclusion of Black Floridians from politics and voting access was born out of the master race dogma that was enabled by a legal system which failed to protect Black Americans and contributed to the conditions that created the space for incidents such as the Ekoe Massacre and the Rosewood Massacre to occur. This political exclusion helped cement the objectives of the Democrats in Florida at the time, which included retaining political control of local and state government. As we noted in the second episode, African Americans who were able to succeed economically or at least rise above their station in life were often seen as a threat to architects of the mechanisms that disenfranchised Blacks. Many went to great lengths to enact or enforce laws in such a way as to create a dependence of African Americans on white supremacists and leaders of the majority party or Democrats. These unpunished crimes were a signal to the perpetrators of this and similar crimes that there would be no consequences for their actions. Let's explore why. 
Following the Civil War in the 1860s, it was the Republican Party in Washington, home of former abolitionists, that pushed for Black legal rights and social equality in the South. Then dubbed the Radical Republicans, the GOP enacted a series of constitutional amendments and Reconstruction Acts that ensured those protections for former slaves, four million former slaves. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 guaranteed that everyone in the U.S., regardless of race, was, quote, entitled to the full and equal enjoyment, end quote, of public accommodations and facilities. Together, these amendments, known as the Reconstruction Statutes, gave free Blacks access to federal courts if their rights were violated. In an interview with NPR, constitutional scholar Lawrence Goldstone said, quote, what the radical Republicans wanted, led by Charles Sumner in the Senate and Thaddeus Stevens in the House, was probably the largest experiment in social engineering ever taken. They wanted the federal government to take these 4 million newly freed slaves and integrate them fully into society virtually immediately, end quote. Ultimately, this did not happen. Goldstone's book, Inherently Unequal, examines how the Supreme Court's decisions in cases pertaining to these amendments suppressed the civil rights movement in the latter half of the 1800s and enabled the poor treatment of African-Americans in the South for decades to come. A review of that book in the NPR article titled the Supreme Court's failure to protect Black rights explains that this is in part why Reconstruction statutes could not deliver the protections they were intended to deliver for African Americans. The Supreme Court declared the Civil Rights Act of 1875 unconstitutional in 1883. The High Court also said Congress lacked the constitutional authority under the 14th Amendment to grant equal protections under the law to Blacks, instead giving that authority to states and local governments. Similarly, in an article titled, The Death of Voting Rights, The Legal Disenfranchisement of Minority Voters, by Virginia E. Hench, that was published in the Case Western Reserve Law Review, notes, quote, direct du jour ballot exclusion of the freedmen was illegal. Violence, intimidation, and fraud persisted, however, and white supremacists quickly sought legal but indirect hurdles to minority voting, including the manipulation of voting requirements, end quote. Du jour ballot exclusion, meaning African-American access to the ballot box was blocked because of laws and policies that enabled that to happen. It goes on to explain that states were unable to bar freedmen, or free Blacks, from voting outright without risking the reduction of their state's representation in Congress as a penalty. Some Southerners created, quote, whites only, end quote, primaries, effectively guaranteeing that the general election would be a runoff between the preferred white candidates and ensuring that minority voters did not have a candidate that advocated for their concerns. Some states attempted to circumvent laws that struck down the white primary system by manipulating voting laws in order to disenfranchise Blacks. Arkansas, for example, imposed lengthy residence requirements, which limited party membership to whites and established separate primaries and runoff elections for Blacks and whites. Additionally, non-party members could only vote in primaries if they practiced complete racial segregation outlined in the state's 1874 Arkansas Constitution. Such voters also had to abide by a ban on interracial marriage and payment of a poll tax. By the early 1900s, most states with sizable populations of free Blacks had enacted poll taxes that reduced the number of eligible Black voters, since many poor Blacks could not afford the tax. Literacy, or understanding tests, used to further disenfranchise Blacks legally, many of whom could not read, while presenting the appearance of neutrality, 
also became quite common. Grandfather and old soldier clauses made it easier to further disenfranchise African Americans without disenfranchising whites by exempting certain people from the application of literacy tests and other voting restrictions. They included anyone who served in the U.S. or Confederate Army or Navy, their descendants, as well as anyone who had voted or whose father or grandfather had voted before January 1st, 1867. Well, mostly whites fought for the Confederacy, and while the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, was passed in 1865, and the 14th Amendment, which granted citizenship to all people born in the U.S., including former slaves, was passed in 1866 and ratified in 1868, the 15th Amendment, however, which granted Black men the right to vote, wasn't passed until 1869 and ratified until 1870. So it would have been impossible for any Black man, his father or his grandfather to have voted before 1867. And still, as is evidenced by the massive Black voter registration movement that began prior to the Ocoee massacre, and is part of that legacy of resistance that we've been seeing and talking about throughout this podcast that African Americans employed in over to overcome discrimination and racism, Despite all of the seemingly insurmountable hurdles they faced, when Black Americans found a way to circumvent these discriminatory laws and practices, the most ruthless elements of their oppressors, in a sense, resorted to unabashed terror. And in some cases, we're exploring on this podcast, just burned everything down. And as our next guest, Michigan State University English professor and Florida native Julian Chambliss explains, there is no reasoning with that. My name is Julian Chambliss. I'm a professor of English at, at Michigan State University. I'm also the Val Berriman Curator of History at the MSU Museum, core faculty in the consortium for Critical Diversity and a Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, and co-director of the Digital Humanities and Literary Cognition Lab at MSU. And so you talk about there were Black people, there were white people. What were the dynamics between Black and white people sort of, I guess, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century in Ocoee? Well, this is one of the things that's really complicated. I, I think it's, it's difficult for us to quite understand. Usually when we talk about the end of Reconstruction and the rise of Jim Crow, we, we tend to describe it like a switch. Like, you know, there used to be Reconstruction, then switch over and now it's, it's Jim Crow. But actually it's a process that takes like 20 some odd years. And in Florida, that process is really complicated by the fact that Yes, once Reconstruction is over, there's a rewriting of the Constitution, as, as scholars like Robert Castanello and Paul Ortiz have talked about, uh, makes it possible for Florida to pass increasingly really regressive voting suppression practices, grandfather clauses, poll tax, literacy tests, and things like that. And Florida was at some level a, a, a trend leader in, in ways to suppress the vote. But all those processes didn't necessarily land evenly across the state. One of the things that was really important for a Democrats at the end of Reconstruction was to drive out Republicans. And Republicans had made great inroads in Florida during Reconstruction. And the influx of people from the North 
who tended not necessarily to have all the same prejudices of people who were sort of local meant that you had a weird kind of competition between whites who had ties to other parts of the country. Again, remember, Florida tried to attract a lot of people who wanted to come down, settle by land. They were coming from the north. They were coming from the Midwest. And the naming patterns in Central Florida in particular kind of speak to that. Went to Park, went to Haven, went to Garden, right? These are northerners who are coming down with a sense of they're escaping the cold. Cyclical, the snowbird phenomenon is not a new phenomenon. It's an established one. So there's a, a kind of weird political dynamic where numbers of people who are coming in who are being attracted by this sort of like this vision of orange culture or buying land, planting groves, but not necessarily wanting to stay here during the hottest parts of the year. And they are employing African-Americans in these, in these lots in a cyclical way. African-Americans themselves, like I say, they own land, so they have their own lots. And there's a weird sort of like dynamic where there are white people who are here, wealthier white people here some part of the time, Black people here all the time. And then a kind of like indigenous white Florida population that's in the middle. And one of the sort of consequences of that transformation in terms of voting is that the effort to suppress African-American votes does succeed. It succeeds in actually suppressing votes of all poor people. And, you know, T. Thomas Fortune, who was a really key figure in the civil rights movement, he came from Florida. He wrote about the nature of sort of regressive practice that's affecting poor Black people and poor white people and the common cause associated with that. But not one of those practices is always successful. So, you know, you might pass a grandfather clause and then you might have a poll tax and that gets people who are poor, but there are plenty of Black people who can pay a poll tax. And so there are Black people able to vote. And so as you go into the 20th century, as we get closer to the time period of the Koei massacre, one of the things that Republicans and Democrats are vying for control. Democrats are trying to systematically eradicate Republicans from the state. But actually a small percentage of black voters could be pivotal in an election. And so you have white Republicans still trying to encourage black people to participate, still still looking for, and this creates tensions around questions of rep- representation. And the Republican party itself and is increasingly uh, riven by sort of strife between Republicans who want to embrace having Black Republicans within the party and those that want to distance themselves from a platform that supports African-American rights. And so even though they're not necessarily able to vote in large numbers, Black voters turning up could, much like in contemporary politics, be very important to the settling an election. And so there's always a vested interest on the part of Republicans in terms of in, in getting Black people to vote. And there's always a vested interest on the part of Democrats in suppressing their participation. And so that sort of sets up the sort of struggle and strife that you get when, you, when we get closer to a COI, adding to the fact that women are given the right to vote right before. And that creates its own set of tension because like there's so many more people, women who are able to vote, but those women are also Black. So there's this whole subtext around racism and sexism that intersects at this moment to create a lot of tension between Black and white voters. And so one of the things I think that I wanted to try to focus on here, because I I, I don't know if you agree, but when I 
study this history, just, you know, most history books and accounts of post-Reconstruction era, pre-Civil Rights era, Black history, in terms of Florida, really talks about this voter registration movement that was happening because supposedly one of the largest Black voter registration movements of the period and just nothing. And so this was very significant. And it seems to me from what I've read that it had a lot to do with a lot of the tension and the animosity that was already building because of the things you just mentioned. And so this effort really was almost, it seems like the straw that broke the camel's back. Am I correct in interpreting that or was something else going on prior to the Okoe massacre? No, I I think that's true. The reality is that, for lack of a better term, white supremacy to work, there's a a sort of interlocking set of practices that make that happen, right? You're suppressing the vote through legal means and, and intimidation, economic dependency, right? And in the case of a COI, you can sort of look at it like every one of those things is being sort of like countered. Right. So you have in in the case of like someone like July Perry who who's trying to vote, you have the judge encouraging him to to sort of press this right. Cheney. Judge Cheney, right, exactly. And and then you have this sort of like overarching question of the economic autonomy of African Americans, right? This sort of like, you know, looming class uh, labor strife around African Americans. And all those things sort of like intersect around Akoi. And it, it is deliberately and very much connected to the fact that you have women in the right to vote, right? And this sort of post-women entering political sphere, the numbers of voters, the uncertainty that creates in terms of like African-American women, who of course, in the context of the activism of African-American of this period, and you know, again, I point to someone like Paul Ortiz, who's done a great job of documenting a very insurgent very aggressive effort on the part of African-Americans to be involved in the political process. Like I always like to point out to students, it's not like black people aren't trying to vote. It's not like black people aren't trying to like um, better themselves economically. It's not like black people aren't trying to, you know, participate in a full measure of citizenship. It's just if they do it really well, white people come through and burn everything to the ground. Like there's no answer to like, I'm going to burn it all to the ground. Like you can't like reason with that, right? That becomes like a really... I don't mean to be like trite, but like that, that's the ultimate like counter to like, you know, I want to believe in like democratic process. I don't care. We're going to bring it out to the ground. And I, you know, I can't sugarcoat that. Like if one person is going like, well, you know, I've maneuvered past all the sort of like barriers you've thrown up to participate in the political process. And the other person goes like, great, now I'm going to kill you. They win. And that's really one of the things that ultimately shapes the, the nature of Black activism in the 20th century, because at, at some level, just simply adhering to the process isn't enough. You also have to uh, recognize that you, you know, you got to push beyond, and that does give rise to, I think, a lot of frustration for African Americans in the Florida context. But I think, from a political culture standpoint, Florida continues to be a place that, even going into the mid part of the 20th century, has a high level of political activism. Harry T. Moore, you know, the actual first NAACP official to be murdered in the United States is Harry T. Moore. It's not Mega Evers. Mega Evers is murdered. 
But Harry T. Moore was blown up first. And part of his activism was encouraging. Him and his wife, right? Him and his wife, exactly. Yeah, him and his wife. And part of his activism was getting people to vote. But he got people to vote by creating an alternative political organization and, and encouraging Black people to register as Democrats. Right? Like, it's important to recognize, like, again, an African-American looking at the system, trying to figure out how do I, how, how do we sort of achieve, you know, participation despite what people might understand. Harry T. Moore is encouraging African-Americans, you need to register as a Democrat so you can register in this sort of restricted primary, white only primary, so you can have an impact, right? And he also writes letters to the editor and things like that. So the legacy of political activism scratches back in Florida. And the Akoi, again, it becomes this question of like access and power and how do you suppress people? And I often think about the Akoi massacre as a direct response to the specter of Black people simply participating. And it's frightening at some level because it, it resonates with some of the rhetoric that I, I hear today. episode. What about Black communities that were able to thrive and grow in spite of the threat of violence from outside forces? We're going to explore the promise of full citizenship some African-Americans were able to realize and find in successful Black communities, including a place that boasts as the first incorporated Black town in America, and why places like these make places like Akoi and Rosewood possible, even if only for a brief moment in time. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And check out our website, www.dreamsofblackwallstreet.com, where you can subscribe and keep up to date on all of our latest episodes.